And this is Hebrews 2020, and this will be our 91st tiny contribution to a theological exegesis of this wonderful homily written not only for the first century but for the 21st century Christian called Hebrews. We see Jesus, we see him crowned with glory, and that's the glory of a king, a universal king. And we see him glory with glory not only of a king, but with the honor of a priest, and he's a universal priest. Today I want to begin, before we get into our study, by announcing the passing into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and into the glorious freedom of the children of God of Bob Atkinson, a longtime friend of this ministry. And I want to send out the all of the love of Tetelestai Phalanx to his daughter Jennifer Messick and to Brian also who had great love and respect for Bob. He spent many fruitful years in our congregation. We had much, many years of fruitful correspondence as well. He was a true friend and also a companion of Christ. His prayers, which he dedicated himself to, are, have been very effective. And so, once again, our, all our love goes to Jennifer and Brian, to Brianna and Stephen, and to the whole family, knowing that we can have the expectation of a glorious reunion and to be in the heavenly city together where goodbye is not in the vocabulary. The second thing I want to mention, and it's pertinent to today's message and to the message to come after this, is imagine my delight. I've been reading, as I've mentioned many, many times to you, a lot of Bernard Lonergan, and I glean from him and from his studies. He, there's now a collection of Lonergan books in which there are 25 volumes. The 25th volume is one that I've been coveting for several months now, and it has to do with archives and early writings of Bernard Lonergan, some of them at least from the earlier mid-30s when he was in his 30s. And they are seminal writings because they contain themes and perhaps the most prominent theme that was salient throughout all his writings. And so imagine my delight when I ordered this on Kindle, waking up on the morning of January 3rd, still in the dark, I turn on the Kindle, and I check the table of contents for volume 25 in the archives of Lonergan, and I find that two chapters are devoted to what he calls Pantone Anakephaliosis, which is my favorite subject. 
Ephesians 1.10, pantone, of course, means all or all things. Anakephaleosis was the recapitulation or the total restoration universally of all things. Two chapters were devoted to that. It's tempting to quote all kinds of passages from it. But I will quote one small thing that he said there, very briefly, and I want you to know that this quote I read after we named this year the year of the great king. And so imagine my delight, if not yours, imagine mine at least. He wrote this, we always find the work of Christ described as the work of peace, the peace of a universal king. Now, that was very striking to me, not because I look for confirmations to come from the Holy Spirit or signs to come from circumstances or books or conversations, though they often do, but that one, well, that was definitely a confirmation that God intends for us to look this year to our great king, especially in a year of political uncertainty and of historic challenge, challenges that are going to be greater than even were faced in 2020. People who wanted to kick that year to the curb were going to be surprised at what's coming, perhaps, perhaps. But if you're occupied with Jesus Christ, that makes all the difference in the world and in the eternity to come, for that matter. So, Father, we pray that you'll speak peace to your people Prince of Peace, speak peace to your people through this message. And our great King of glory, we open the gates of our hearts, our minds, and our spirits so that you may come in and fill us with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines from your face, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for this time together. You've provided it. You're here. You're present in your people. You're present in me speaking. You're present in all of us receiving. And we thank you for that wonderful assurance. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've come to Hebrews by way of revelation. I've said that many times, but it bears repetition because ours is not a normal commentary. Ours is a, an exegesis that has arrived at Hebrews through a certain route that we've taken as a local assembly here. We've come to Hebrews, therefore, by way of about five years or four years, maybe, in Revelation. The apocalypse in a letter that we call Revelation, and that's what it is, an apocalypse in a letter was written to seven representative congregations in Asia Minor. It's the apocalypse which God gave to Jesus Christ so that he, in turn, could show his slaves things that were to immediately take place in their time. Through his angel, Jesus communicated this apocalypse to his slave, John. Now the word slave immediately 
causes people's hackles to go up and probably should has some shock value but John is called his slave the recipients of this are called his slaves because slaves of God is an honorable title and the word is used and employed in the scriptures frequently Paul was glad to self-identify as a slave of Jesus Christ Peter was glad to call himself an apostle as Paul did but he was even more glad to refer to himself and self-identify and there's a lot about self-identification today what do you identify as I identify as a slave I'd be honored to be called a slave of my master Jesus Christ any day of the week I'd rather be a slave of Jesus Christ than a master over men or master over people and I'd rather be a servant to people for Christ's sake than to have them serve me so through his angel Jesus communicated this apocalypse to his slave John who testified of the Word of God and of Jesus the Messiah in all he saw slaves is used of self-professed voluntary love slaves of Jesus the Messiah of Jesus Christ and they are love slaves because of the labor of love which they gladly execute in obedience to him as he works his will in them for he himself took the form of a slave and became obedient to the extent of the death of the cross now I want you to emphasize in your own mind the death of the cross not death by crucifixion Jesus didn't die a death by crucifixion Jesus died the death of the unique cross in which his death was the experience of the wages of sin for all humankind we came through John and his gospel also to Hebrews and so Jesus said in John no man takes my life from me if they if someone took his life from him you could say that they killed him by crucifying him no man takes my life I lay it down I have the power to lay my life down and the authority and power to take it back again so Jesus himself took the form of a slave and became obedient to the extent of the death of the cross Philippians 2 8 the obedience resulted that particular obedience resulted in the rectification of all of humanity and the exaltation of Jesus to the right side of the majesty of the Father in heaven where the willing wearer of the crown of thorns 
was crowned with glory and honor by the Father's will and the Father's willing. So to be called the slaves of Jesus Christ is both a glory and an honor. All who exalt themselves will be abased, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Matthew 23, 12, for one thing, tells that, for one place. Moreover, slaves, douloi, is what the prophets of God were called. Now, a prophet is not without honor, because God honors prophets. People who are receptive to the word honor prophets, but a prophet is often not honored in his own hometown, in his own familiar circumstances of kin and family and familiar friends. But a prophet has honor, great honor. And so slaves is what the prophets of God were called in Amos 3, 6 and 7. Amos 3.6 is a shocker because it says whenever there's evil done in a city, God says, I've done it, meaning he's allowed it. He's permitted it. The destruction of cities is the beginning of the end of a nation that does not honor God. But in 7 of Amos, it says the Lord God won't do a thing Unless he reveals, and guess what word is used in the Greek there? Apocalypse. Apocalypto is the verb. The lemma form of it. Just like Apocalypse of John. The Lord God won't do a thing unless he reveals instruction to his slaves, the prophets. His slaves, the prophets. Now, slave here doesn't mean something that's slavish, servile, groveling. It indicates a willingness to do the will of God. It indicates an implicit obedience. Here I am, Lord. Send me. John, the writer of Revelation, whom I believe to be the same John called the disciple whom Jesus loved, who wrote the Gospel of John, And that means he wasn't the Apostle John. He was someone closer to Jesus than the Apostles even. John understood this instruction that Amos talks about in 3.7, given to prophets. He understood it in Revelation 10.7 to be regarding the completion of the mystery of God. Now, completion is a word that kind of sum totals all of Hebrews. Mystery kind of sum totals all of Paul's epistles. The completion of the mystery of God in Revelation 10.7 is what God instructs his slaves about now. Not any old Christian, but the Christian who's willing to do his will. Anyone that's willing to do my will, he said, they, they shall know of the doctrine. John 7, 17. They shall know of the doctrine and of its origin with my Father. Not any old Christian who wants to put a bumper sticker on his car to tell everybody he's a Christian. 
Now, the mystery of God, according to Paul, now let's do this, Revelation 10, 7, back to Amos 3, 7, and over to Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. The mystery of God, according to Paul, has to do with the anakephaliosis of all things, tapanta, in Christ. As the body of Paul's writings, the whole body of Paul's writings constitutes an apocalypse in the form of a collection of epistles. So the revelation of John, as it's called, but it's better called the revelation of Jesus Christ, is an apocalypse, a stunning revelation of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, if you want to know what apocalypse means. It doesn't mean disaster, though it is disastrous for the proud. The revelation of John is an apocalypse that's also in the form of an epistle. We'll see that maybe later on. As revelation is an apocalypse in the form of an epistle, so Hebrews is a homily within an epistle in which the apocalypse of the universally saving grace of Jesus Christ is understood and assumed. It's already presupposed and understood by the Hebrews writer. This is one of the most key theses of the whole book. The most mature teaching, in my view, comes in the form of theses, T-H-E-S-E-S. -E -S -E -S. A thesis is kind of a formulation that captures the entirety of the content of a discourse, or at least a major part of it and a major theme of it. Here is a thesis. I'm going to formalize it right now. I'm going to formalize this thesis for Hebrews. Here it is. Hebrews is a homily within an epistle in which the apocalypse of the universally saving grace of Jesus Christ is understood and even assumed. Now, because of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, he speaks peace as a universal king. He's called a king of kings in Revelation 19.16 and 1 Timothy 6.15 because he is a universal king. Plus, he's a king over a kingdom of priests. He speaks peace in Psalm 85.8 as a universal king. And so he speaks peace to all of the human race. There is in Hebrews what I call a Christological anthropology, that is, a study of man as being ultimately constituted of Jesus Christ. All men, all humanity, constituted ultimately in the one Jesus Christ. Call it a Christological anthropology. Why not? We're doing an exegetical treatment of Hebrews that's theological. And so we also came to Hebrews by way of Paul, a series called Better Call Paul, followed by a study of Romans, followed by a study of justification, a 10-part study, followed by a study of the mystery in 2019, coupled with a study of doing and living theology. 
So we came to Hebrews by way of Paul, having called Paul in order to receive the wisdom that was given to him, 2 Peter 3.15, by the God of all grace, 1 Peter 5.10. In Paul, we have what I would call also a Christological anthropology. In fact, Lonergan calls it a Christological metaphysic. There's a metaphysic or an anthropological metaphysic in Paul's epistles, meaning that God intends not only to summarize the whole sequence of humanity from Adam on and including Adam in Christ, but that he also has a plan to constitute the whole universe of proportionate being. And that's what metaphysics has to do with. Metaphysics has to do with the universe and all of its proportionate being. More comes on that later. Maybe I'll do more about this theology when I have time to sit down for a year or two in my middle age and write. Who knows? Somebody will anyway. So a Christological anthropology. By that, and you'll see this in print if you're wondering about spelling, etc. By that is meant that Paul's epistles in toto, in their totality express a solidarity of humanity in Christ. In Paul, this solidarity has definitively replaced a former solidarity of humanity in Adam. Now, we find this in earnest in passages like Romans 5.12 through 21 and 1 Corinthians 15, 20 all the way really to the end, but especially 20 to 28. Hebrews certainly preserves this Christological anthropology. We've already learned that he's not ashamed to call us siblings, brothers and sisters, for that reason. Paul has established with certitude the universally saving significance of one Jesus Christ for all of humanity. If you don't believe it, then take time to look at our series called Better Call Paul, and Romans especially. Especially Romans 11.32, the climactic verse in Romans, God's intention to show mercy to all. In Irenaeus' words, Irenaeus was one of the patristic theologians, from his famous writings called Against Heresies, and this is from Against Heresies 3, 18, 1, section 1, Christ, quote, recapitulated in himself the long sequence of mankind. Now, I hope you'll listen carefully to this because we're treading on some ground that we haven't really trod before, or at least not quite like this yet. Irenaeus tied this recapitulation to the incarnation, that is, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. And other patristic theologians did the same thing. They said, in other words, by the incarnation, all of humanity was included in Christ and therefore became comprised of Christ. However, this doctrine must be augmented, in my view, 
by the further reality of Jesus' death on the cross and by the cross, death by the cross or death on the cross, by the cross is not meant just any death by crucifixion. But the death of the cross of our Lord Jesus, which bespeaks an event in which Jesus experienced death for that long sequence of humankind. Spartacus died by being crucified, but he didn't bear in his body the sins of the world. Spartacus was also a slave who went to the cross. He's like Jesus in two respects but he's totally unlike Jesus in that he died by crucifixion, but he did not die a death in which he tasted the wages of sin, which is death, for all of humankind, or even for any other human being, or even for himself. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the death of the cross that Paul speaks of in Philippians 2.8, which is also spoken of in another way in Hebrews 2.9, where he tasted death for every person. The death of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ bespeaks an event in which Jesus experienced death for the long sequence of humankind that began with Adam and included Adam and included all of humankind without exception in all of history. It is actually wrong to say that Jesus died by crucifixion. And I've said it before, not meaning this, but I've said he was crucified, he died by crucifixion. But it's wrong to say that Jesus died by crucifixion. Philippians 2.8 makes it clear that he died the death of the cross, the unique cross of Jesus Christ, which is symbolic for a unique death died, which was effective and efficacious to take away the sin of the whole world. Hundreds of thousands of men and women have been crucified in history. Crucifixion wasn't only practiced by the Romans. It was practiced in Persia. It's been practiced elsewhere. Hundreds of thousands of men and women and even children died as a result of what they suffered by crucifixion. So you can say they died by crucifixion. Jesus did not die by crucifixion. On the cross, Jesus died the death, which is uniquely the wages of sin in Romans 6.29 for all of the human race so that all of the human race would have eternal life in the context of justification in the eyes of God. To say that Jesus died by crucifixion is to say that men took his life. But Jesus said, no one takes my life. I have the power to lay my life down and to take it back again. John 10, 16 and following. 
He died a unique death in which he experienced the wages of sin for all who sinned in Adam, including Adam himself. This is why to the doctrine, listen carefully, this is why to the doctrine of the universal anthropological inclusiveness of the incarnation of the Son of God must be added the death of Jesus Christ without which there could be no solidarity of the sinless God-man and sinful human beings. I'll say that again. To the doctrine of the universal anthropological inclusiveness of the incarnation, we must add the death of Jesus Christ without which there would never be any solidarity of the sinless God-man and sinful human beings. Just as important as the incarnation and as important even as his death is the resurrection and finally the exaltation of Jesus in this Christological anthropology. In fact, here is where Christology and anthropology, the study of humankind, homardiology, the study of sin, soteriology, the study of salvation, eschatology, the study of final things, ecclesiology, the study of the church, all these come together here. You can't leave the incarnation alone. As magnificent as that doctrine is, and we could say as wonderful as Christmas is, and as important as that historical reality is, it's indispensably important. But the whole Christ event, the entire Christ event must be considered. And that includes the incarnation of the eternal Son of God or the Word of God who is God. It includes the life of unrelenting obedience to the Father that Christ lived in the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5, 7 and following. It includes the culmination and climax of that obedience to the extent of death, the death of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, not just death by crucifixion. Then, still the Christ event, resurrection and exaltation, coronation, enthronement on the right side of his majesty God the Father above the heavens. For this reason, we have to speak not only of a Christological anthropology, but of a Christological soteriological anthropology. We do not have solidarity with the man Christ Jesus because of his incarnation alone, but because of instaration. Here's a word that's probably the key word of my teaching in the past several years and will probably be from here on in. Instaration. Now that comes from a Latin word, but the Latin is probably related to a stem called S-T-A-U, a stem of a previous languages, S-T-A-U, 
which is, in fact, the root word for the Greek word stauros, which equals cross, the cross, stauros, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instauration. Now, again, I'm coining that word to have this meaning. It doesn't have that meaning if you look it up in a dictionary. It usually means something like restoration. But if you trace the roots of this, in the Indo-European root of the word S-T-A-U and the Greek word S-T-A-U-R-O-S, you have the heart of this being the cross. It's a restoration without which we can't consider the cross. We have to consider, in other words, the cross being at the heart of this restoration, or else there won't be a restoration. There is no universal restoration without Christ, and there is no universal restoration without the unique cross of Christ. This is what's so important. Now, this is why, once again, Christology and anthropology come together in a solidarity that's created by the impact of the cross of Christ. You can't leave the incarnation alone, as magnificent of a reality as that is, because the whole Christ event has to be included, especially his death. We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, says Hebrews 2, 9 and 10. Because of the suffering of death. A unique death, nobody else's death, tasted death for everybody else. The wages of sin. Now, We don't have solidarity with the man Christ Jesus because of incarnation alone, but because of instauration. His death on the cross. His death of the cross. The confession of Paul was not, I was incarnated with Christ. The confession of Paul was, I was crucified with Christ. Starizo. Crucified. Sustarizo. Crucified, crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. So to make the solidarity of humankind with Christ merely and only. Now I'm addressing an error that's in the church today. Among universalists even. To make the solidarity of humankind with Christ merely and only a matter of the incarnation is to be an enemy of the cross of Christ. Philippians 3.18. And I'm not charging Irenaeus with this because Irenaeus was not guilty of that because he also esteemed the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, we must go beyond merely esteeming the cross of Christ 
There must be no other basis for our boasting than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it never be that I should ever boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, said Paul, by which I have been crucified to this world and the world crucified to me. Because the world isn't crucified to you, you're very concerned about what's going on in the world. And we should be but not to the exclusion of Jerusalem, the new one, the heavenly one that's to be coming into our mind. To be concerned only with the things going on in this world and in this age is to depart from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief. It's the boast of our hope. And there must be no other basis of our boasting. The boast of our hope in a conciliatory synthesis of all of humanity and all beings in Christ is rooted not only in his incarnation, oh, that's essential, but also in his death, the death of the cross, the experience of which led to the justification of many, says Isaiah 53, 11. And Paul interpreted the many as all of humanity in Romans 5, 18. Which was followed, that death was followed inevitably by burial in which he was with the rich man, says Isaiah 53, 9. So if you want to take the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus was with the rich man, meaning he, Jesus, experienced the pains of hell and did so for all humankind. So no human being dies and lifts up his eyes being in hell. Never happens. In his burial, in Isaiah 53, 9, he was with the rich man, meaning it was revealed that all the dead, including the rich man who died in that parable, which was a retelling of a folk tale, even that rich man was included in the anthropological solidarity of Christ and in the soteriological solidarity of Christ. That burial was followed again inevitably by Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which again is declared to be for our justification in Romans 4.25. That is the justification of all of humanity, in case you were wondering, in Romans 5.18. This is how all of humanity comes into solidarity with Christ. And Christ recapitulates in himself the long sequence of humanity from Adam, and including Adam, to the end of history. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, not only because of his incarnation, but because of his suffering of a death whereby death was defeated and is slated for utter annihilation so that every person who has ever died and is under the reign of death, death has to give up, cough up, cough it up.
and whereby the devil who held the leverage of the fear of death over people for their whole lives is destroyed. Hebrews 2.14. For even the devil is destroyed, listen carefully, in the salvific transformation and transfiguration that also encompasses supernatural fallen beings. Now, because of the central significance of Jesus' death, in which he tasted death, experienced to the dregs death for all, while far from God, says Hebrews 2, 9, if you read it, chorus instead of charis. We have to see the universal recapitulation in Christ as an instauration. Now, I have to be careful with this doctrine. I don't mean careful because it's dangerous doctrine. Careful to build it in a way that it's understandable. Instauration. Francis Bacon wrote a famous book called The Great Instauration in which he tried to do what Google's doing, summarize all knowledge. But I'm using instauration in, so that it means that the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ or the death that he died on his cross has a universally redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying effect, a corrective effect. So there is a correction and a reconciliation both. When you reconcile lines on a printed page, you also correct. You reconcile, you correct, you straighten out. Instauration doesn't normally mean that. So don't go to your dictionaries or to philosophy books and have to find the definition. I've redefined it by seeing in it the primitive root S-T-A-U, an Indo-European root word, which is arguably connected to the Greek word stauros, which means cross. So it speaks of the word of the cross, to logu, to stauru, in 1 Corinthians 1.18. Paul declared that he had determined to know and to communicate nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't say, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him incarnated. Paul knew that he was incarnated. It was presupposed. But Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. Of course Paul believed that Jesus was the eternal word incarnate. God Enfleshed. He even taught about it. Philippians 2 7, Romans 8, 1 to 3, all over the place. 1 Timothy 3 6, all over the place. 3 16, that is. It's assumed in Paul's gospel. But incarnation led to instauration. Now, the Latin word instarare. And that's, it actually appears just like this, I-N-S-T-A-U-R-A-R-E, S-T-A-U, again, in the middle of the Latin word, instarare, 
Where do we find that? It's in Ephesians 1.10, the same place where Pantone anakephaliosis is found, or the anakephaliao, the summation of tapanta, everything in the heavens and the earth. The Latin has instarere omnia, that's everything, in Christo, C-H-R-I-S-T-O. Omnia in Christo. Instarere, omnia in Christo. That's the Latin Vulgate translation of Ephesians 1.10 or a phrase, the key phrase in Ephesians 1.10. It's true that there's no solidarity of humankind with Jesus Christ without incarnation. But further and even more significantly, there is no solidarity of humankind with Jesus Christ without instauration. Now, I'll tell you this. Repel any doctrine that says otherwise. There's a lot of downplaying of the cross today, even among those people who call themselves universalists. A downplaying of the death of Christ and an accusation of messages like mine today that we spend too much time talking about the death of Jesus Christ or that Fleming Rutledge spent too much time on the understanding of the death of Jesus Christ in her magnum opus book called The Crucifixion. Or that Paul gloried too much in the cross or that Hebrews puts too much emphasis on the death of Jesus Christ, which for the very suffering of which he's crowned with glory and honor. And where resurrection is mentioned once throughout 13 chapters of Hebrews. Not to downplay it, but to emphasize his death. I find it appalling that there are people who downplay the death of Jesus Christ the blood of Jesus Christ, the self-sacrificial death of the victim and the priest in one person, Christ. I repel these doctrines. I repel these teachers. I anathematize anything that is an enemy against the cross of Jesus Christ or that accords it a secondary place, even. Now, one reason why it's especially important to reiterate the doctrine of the universally redemptive impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is because all of the sometimes seemingly harsh words of exhortation and dire words of warning in this homily have to be understood as being issued in a circle that exists within the larger concentric circle of this universally rectifying impact. Otherwise, the reader may be taken in by teachers who threaten eternal damnation and who interpret certain passages in Hebrews as being such threats. There are reasons other than this why we emphasize the cross. But this one's enough for now. There's another kind of teaching on the other side that flippantly spouts slogans like once saved, always saved. As if, 
Now again, there may be nothing wrong with that slogan on its face, but when it's cited and quoted flippantly, as if believers' responsibility ends after inviting Jesus into their life, or after the initial evocation of faith in Jesus Christ, if that's what you mean by once saved, always saved, that my responsibility ended when my first faith was evoked, then that slogan is foolish. So again, we came to Hebrews via Revelation. I'm almost ready to quit this message, this increment. Again, as we close, I'll close like we opened. We came to Hebrews via Revelation. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which in his essence, in its very essence, is a dramatic disclosure of Jesus in his universally saving significance as a slaughtered but standing and reigning lamb. John began his apocalypse with a formal epistolary introduction because it's an, apo it's an apocalypse, but it's within a letter. And even within the letter, there are seven letters to seven angels or messengers of seven churches in Asia Minor at the time, modern Turkey today, about things that were about to unfold in their own imminent future. Here it is. John to the seven... This is Revelation 1, 4 to 6, an epistolary introduction. John to the seven assemblies in the province of Asia. Grace to you and peace from he who is and who always was, sounds like an introduction to the Lord, and who is coming, and from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful martyr, the firstborn of the dead ones, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his own blood, and made us a kingdom of priests, or kingdom priests to God, even his Father, to him the glory and the dominion for the ages. Amen. Right there, you've got enough if you're a pastor or a teacher to teach for a year right there, that little paragraph. Now it says that the recipients of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ that was communicated to John, a slave of Jesus Christ, a willing one, who also was his friend, Go figure. For the churches is to people whom Jesus loved. Written by the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he, is, he has written this to people whom he freed, liberated from their sins, and therefore from what Paul called the reign of sin, R-E-I-G-N, and whom he constituted as a kingdom of priests. Now remember, Jesus is a king, Jesus is a priest, and he's the prophet that was predicted that would be like Moses. So as a prophet, he became a slave and became obedient to the death of the cross. And so he's highly exalted. We are a kingdom, which means we are kings under the king of kings. 
We are priests. And so we have the privilege of aiming at a crown of glory for reigning in life as kings and for a crown of honor for functioning in this life as efficacious priests. That's why we're pressing on to be complete. And I'll see that in our next increment. I'll show you that perhaps a little better in the upcoming increment 92. But in closing, it is striking that the addressees are called priests, and it's even more surprising that they're called a kingdom and priests. Striking to us because this chimes with Hebrews in which the PT tells his readers that we have a great high priest over the house of God in Hebrews 10.21. A great high priest. Our great king is our great high priest. He is a universal king. He is a universal priest. He does not just represent the people of Israel to God. He represents the people of the universe of all times to God, which become the Israel of God. This is also arresting, we could call it, for the reason that in Hebrews 3.6 he says, we prove ourselves to be God's house, over which is the faithful son, if only we hold fast to the boldness and the boast of our hope. And this in turn brings us to where we are in our line upon line exegesis in Hebrews 3.14, for the proof that we've become companions of the Christ is that we hold firmly the reality, that is the substance of hoped for things until the end, the end being the objective of completion that we had at the beginning. So here it is in short. For the proof that we've become companions of the, of the Christ is that we hold firm the reality until the end that we had at the beginning. Now we'll take up from here in our next increment. So Father, we thank you that you have spoken peace into the hearts of your people by exhorting and encouraging us today to look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, so that we may run this race and endure this agona with the patience of Jesus Christ himself. Speak peace into the hearts of your people today through this message I ask again in Jesus' name, amen.